What's up? Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today's episode is an important one. I have Katie Wommersley, the VP of Engineering at Buffer, on the show, and we talk about how managers are really the first line of response for mental health in the workplace. I know mental health can be a super awkward topic, especially at work, but it's so important to think about the health of your team holistically. So we talk about what that means, how to think about it, and give some examples of how this might show up in your day-to-day. Honestly, I don't know a single person that has not come into contact with mental health issues either themselves or in a close family member or friend. So it's always been weird to me that we forget all about that when we enter our offices. And I'm really happy I found someone willing to chat about this on the show. I hope you enjoy it. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie. I mean, I say this every time, but I am really excited because today we're talking about a topic that is so important that I've always wanted to talk about on the show, and that's mental health. So you've talked in the past about how managers are really the first line of defense for mental health at work. So I'd love if you could take me through how you kind of became aware of that fact and how you see that type of thing showing up for managers that you work with. Absolutely. I think that's something that's become increasingly true as we have evolved our understanding of management kind of as an industry from this sort of Tayloristic model, which is trying to get the most out of somebody, like just trying to monitor their output through to understanding that in the knowledge economy, it's not about how fast somebody can work. You're not managing a factory worker anymore in the knowledge economy. You are trying to get somebody to engage with their full mind, with their full creativity. And when that is the task of a manager, when it's about engagement and not just the rate at which they can perform an operation, it becomes important to address the whole person. And that then includes their mental health and their mental well-being. I think that's always true if you're trying to get your employees to be highly engaged, thoughtful, creative knowledge workers, then yeah, you do need to address the whole person. And especially right now during this global pandemic, a lot of managers are suddenly finding themselves, even if they hadn't thought about it before, finding themselves on the front line of a mental health crisis as they try to hold their organizations and their teams together. Yeah, I think about a lot the concept in the book Radical Candor about caring personally. And it's interesting. I think that there's one way to see that, which is, yeah, you should care personally about the people that you work with and make sure that you're asking them how they are. But I think when you bring in the words mental health specifically, it takes on a different impact. It does. And I think there's a lot of stigma around the words mental health. I mean, even the term mental health itself is quite new. That replaces mental illness. I remember not so long as 10 years ago, probably even five years ago, people would talk about mental illnesses. And it was sort of conjuring up this idea of somebody locked away in an attic or something. So I think, oh, we should care for people, be empathetic. That feels very non-controversial right now. But then mental illness, mental health, that then still has a bit of a stigma. And I think it can be quite scary for people to bring up topics around mental health, but also around addressing mental health with direct reports because people are very, very aware of their limitations, not being therapists, not wanting to get into something they can't handle. What happens if you broach that topic and then you realize, well, now you don't really know what to do in the situation. So all of that sort of lack of knowledge, lack of understanding combined with the stigma, I think it makes it quite difficult for managers to feel confident going there. And that makes it difficult to care personally, right? It's like you go, okay, well, how are you? And then the person tells you how they really are. And you're like, okay, great. Well, yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> what do you do? Um, right? I wasn't really trying to get into it, but I guess we're here now. So what do we do? Right, exactly. When you find yourself in that situation or when, or when you're working with your managers, 
people who report to you who are dealing with it with their direct reports, like what does it mean to sort of step up in that situation and how do you help them take those steps even though knowing that that most of us, vast majority of us probably don't have that training? Yeah. I think the first thing to do and that I try to help my managers with is don't panic. If somebody opens up to you, don't freak out or think that it's your job to solve their problem or to make them feel better. You can't fix their feelings. You can't fix their problems. So the first thing there is just don't panic. I like to tell my managers, just say, thank you so much for telling me that. I'm really glad that you trust me to open up to me like that and ask them about their feelings. Like, tell me more. What's that like? That must be hard. The sort of general manager skills there of active listening. So when you're repeating back to a person what they're saying, like that sounds really frustrating. Or I imagine you must have felt really powerless at that point. That can go a, a long way. A lot of what we do there, it's really just about helping people feel heard and helping people feel supported. You're not trying to affect some kind of change. You're not trying to provide a therapeutic service. I think that's really important. You're not a therapist. So you're not trying to fix the person. You're just trying to let them know that you see them and that they're not alone. And that's not that hard to do if you can just not panic and really hold their emotions, listen to them, reflect back what they're saying, don't try to solve them. But that does take practice. It's hard to do. I still find it hard to do. Yeah. And I think especially if you haven't had the experience outside of work where you have yourself or someone in your family or whatever with a mental health problem or crisis, if you've never encountered it, I think it can be really disorienting and like very strange. And so, yeah, I think I really love your advice about dope panic because I think that's probably the first reaction that a lot of people would have is like, oh shit, someone's having feelings. What do I do? Exactly. Just don't panic. It's okay. People have feelings. They come, they go. And you don't need to do anything in the moment. You don't need to react live. That's the other thing I try to tell managers. That's really important. Just stay with them in the moment. Don't panic. Listen to how they're feeling. Just stay calm. If you're having some kind of mental health moment, the last thing you want from your manager is to have them see you as incompetent or to see your manager now freaking out. And now you have two problems. Firstly, your own mental crisis. And then secondly, trying to manage your manager's crisis, right? I'm sure you've all had that experience where you've confided in a friend or a family member and they've gotten so upset about your problem that you found yourself comforting them and you just wish you'd... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, don't panic, just stay calm and don't create the additional problem there of like them needing to soothe you. Or if it's a tough call, whatever happens, you can always go straight to your manager afterwards and ask for support. You could reach out to me on Twitter. You could talk to HR. Like there are things you can do like once the, the direct interaction has ended. But when you're on a call with somebody or in a meeting with somebody, I know we aren't doing that physically anymore. The most important thing there is just don't panic. Just be very calm, very empathetic, slow down your voice, like what I'm doing now. Use lower tones, like if you're talking with a frightened animal. And the reason this works is our brains have these, these neurons that we call mirror neurons, and they have an amazing ability that you can tap into when somebody is freaking out. And what mirror neurons do is they literally mirror the physiological and emotional affect of the person we're with. So humans are hypersocial creatures and we've evolved to mirror physiologically the people that we're with. So if you're panicking and you're with somebody who's speaking slowly, who's very calm, who seems to be listening, what the mirror neurons in your brain will start doing is actually firing in a more calm fashion to mirror the behavior of the person you're with. And that is actually how the frontline responders that man's, or I should say, respond 
to suicide hotlines, that is what they tap into because there's nothing you can say when someone's in crisis. There's no like, here, do this that you can do because they're not thinking with their brain. The only tool you really have there is those mirror neurons and hooking into those. But the upside is that almost anybody has the ability to just stay calm and be reassuring. And that really is very powerful in an acute crisis moment. Yeah, absolutely. Talking through this, obviously, it seems, of course, we need to know about this. But why did it become important for you to start to talk about and normalize this kind of work? And how did this become something that you started to think about? I realized that with my team being a distributed team and everybody working remotely, a lot of the people I was working with were experiencing social isolation being by themselves and were lonely. And I started digging into that and doing a bit of reading around how being lonely, being physically isolated affects the chances you have of getting anxiety and getting depression and realizing that it was quite a high risk factor. And then I started anonymously surveying my team and I found out that half of my engineering team, fully one in two people, were experiencing mild to moderate depression or anxiety. And that's when I realized like, wow, this is a massively prevalent situation. I don't know if it's for everyone, but certainly if you're physically isolated, it's a risk factor and we need to manage that. And that was when I was realizing there's no ways you can even start having questions around like, what do you want to achieve with your career when somebody is acutely anxious or depressed or giving somebody feedback? Like, how do you do that if they're extremely anxious about getting fired? You still need to give them feedback, but what do you do about that? Do you do it in a different way. So that was when I started realizing we need to have a mental health first approach to how we manage because it was just so prevalent. The research does show that almost every adult will experience clinical levels of depression or anxiety at some point during their lives. It's a lot more prevalent than I think we want to acknowledge. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting point and an important one. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's really easy to think that this is something that like, oh, it, you know, it's not common and it's stigmatized and we shouldn't talk about it. And it's like not something that we want to bring up, but really everybody either is experiencing it or someone in their close circle of friends or family is experiencing something like this. So it's actually quite normal, like just as normal as probably getting a cold or like stubbing your toe and breaking your foot or whatever. And I think that the more that we can talk about that, the more that it's easier for people to talk about and maybe less hard to go through this type of conversation. Absolutely. And there's a lot of research that shows that acceptance of feelings helps them to pass more easily and more quickly. And yeah, I completely agree, Maggie. It is extremely, extremely common. And it's true that full-on psychotic breaks are, are not that common, luckily. And I want to clarify, this podcast is not trying to address a really intense, like you should call 911. Good disclaimer. Yeah, <laughs> big asterisk. But yeah, in terms of like mild to moderate anxiety and depression, it's extraordinarily common. And I mean, I imagine even in regular work situations, be they hard conversations about someone's career, or even the really good conversations about good news raises and promotions, or maybe like an opportunity didn't come through or whatever. I think even just being aware of the fact that the person in the room that you're talking to has feelings really, and has like all sorts of things going on in their life and just being more sensitive and more thoughtful about understanding who they are and how they think. I think this advice is useful not even in, when someone is in, an, in a mental health crisis. Absolutely. I think these are the sort of things the things you would do to manage somebody that was struggling with 
a mental health issue would be really good things for somebody who was not. Um, so things like having really clear expectations, that's something that is critical to somebody who is struggling with anxiety, but it will help almost everybody to know what it is that their manager expects of them. Having very get to the point feedback where you don't ramble on and on and build suspense. That's something that's really, really important when somebody has depression or anxiety to sort of get to the point and be clear yet compassionate. But that's something that in almost every conversation you want to do. I don't think anybody enjoys being put through the ringer when it comes to, okay, well, what, where's the butt? Where's the catch? Like waiting for that to happen. <laughs> a lot of these are skills that are going to make you a better manager across the board. Yeah. Which I, th- I think is actually a great segue. It brings me to my next question, which is, I'm curious how you think about developing leaders and managers that can handle this type of work. Plus, of course, all the other type of work that a manager has to handle. Like what's your process or sort of philosophy on coaching and teaching? new managers. Yes. So the first thing I would say is it's very, very important to coach and teach new managers and also for all managers to support them. Like it is a draining job. That manager energy drain is real. And I also do believe that this is not something that people are naturally born with. It's not a, there's a a dangerous myth in people management that some people have people skills or soft skills and others just don't have them. And if you have these soft skills, everything will be fine and you don't need any help. And if you don't have them, you'll never be a good manager. And that's really not true. You can absolutely support managers in doing this kind of work. And the first thing would be just teach people how they should respond. Like, what should they do? I often give managers very specific talking points. Like if somebody says to you, oh, I'm going through a terrible time, what do you say? What we would say then is, I'm really, really sorry to hear that. Thank you for trusting me tell me more about what's going on for you. And often for managers, like having the literal words to say is incredibly helpful because there are two kinds of work when you are in a situation like this for the manager. The first is the cognitive work of trying to figure out like actually what to do and what to say. And then the second is the emotional burden of having somebody unload to you possibly three, four, five times a day. And because the emotional burden is quite quite heavy on managers, we want to make sure that that cognitive burden is as low as possible. We want to make sure that they they have the words, they know what to say, they know what's expected of them. And so they're not trying to work out like, oh, okay, like what do I do now? And then secondly, when it comes to that emotional burden, I think it's important that managers are able to have a peer group where they can share what's going on for them and get support from peers. And If it's at your own company, that's wonderful. But if you don't have that and you're listening as a manager, you don't really have peer support. It's incredibly important to have industry peers. I, on average, once a week, will talk to a engineering leader at another company. I have a whole network of folks and we will have a video chat and I have one with somebody once a week and we brainstorm things. If there's something that my usual tactics aren't working, I'll get advice. And I encourage this for all my managers to have industry peer chats. And that's just incredibly important that they have a a fully, fully safe space where within the company or externally, they can get that emotional support from peers. I also have a peer group um, of people within Drift, but also outside of Drift. And that group of people outside of Drift, I think, have been really critical in not only like you're talking about sort of day-to-day understanding tactics and strategies, but also thinking about what does your career look like? What are the options? And it's been really interesting. We've been, I think, doing this for four or five years with the same group, seeing how people's careers progress and the different options. So yeah, I'm super bought into that idea. Yeah, that's really cool. 
Yeah. On your first point about giving managers the specific words, I think something that that I've experienced, my manager, when I was going into some hard conversations year or two years ago or whatever that was, he actually said, you know what, meet me at whatever time and we're going to role play that conversation. And like, we're going to walk through it and you're going to practice saying the words that you know you're, you're going to have to say so that in the moment it's easier for you to do. And I think it was like, of course, very uncomfortable and weird to role play, obviously, especially with people that you know pretty well. But I think even taking it that extra step and saying like, let's practice what this is like, I think it makes it so much easier to show up in those moments and be present without sort of stressing internally about like, oh shit, what, what was I supposed to say in this situation? Absolutely. We use role play quite a lot as a manager teaching tool at Buffer and it is universally uncomfortable and also universally helpful. Yeah. It's like the dreaded, it's like eating your vegetables at work kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to be like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be the distressed person and now you, you know, but it, it works really well. It really does. Yeah. And I'm definitely one of those people that likes to write everything down that I'm going to say. And that's sort of how I process things. So then, you know, I'm like writing out my little script and like getting ready and yeah, doing all that. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. If you if you know that you're going to go into a difficult conversation with somebody, writing out talking points or even a full script and role playing it with somebody can be incredibly helpful, especially if you need to give feedback to one of your reports. People tend to mess feedback up because they panic in the moment and then they don't want to hurt the human in front of them because we all have so much empathy. And then they soften it to such an extent that it's really unclear what the feedback is. That's kind of the, the most common failure mode I see of a well-intentioned manager. It's really trying hard not to be a tyrant. Practicing your script, writing it out, role-playing it can help you to say the thing that you know you need to say, but it's really, really hard to tell somebody where they're falling short in as many words. Yeah. I also think that kind of along these lines, being able to not just role play, but role model, giving and receiving really hard feedback in a way that's, that shows people that like, it's okay, I'm fine. Like that didn't wound me personally is also a really important thing to do. There's a couple people that I work with and at other companies that I have worked with who I knew I could go to and I could say, give it to me straight. Like, tell me, t give me feedback on this thing. And I knew that they were going to be really direct. And I've even done that sort of in a public setting to show like, hey, we can give really critical feedback about this product that we're working on. And like, I'm fine. That person's fine. It's totally fine. That's really lovely. I love that you do that. Yeah. it's. I think it's just one of those things that it's one thing to do to give feedback in kind of a, a closed room. And I think obviously for personal stuff, that's really important. But in engineering product and design, we work collaboratively, you know, we work publicly. This idea of like how to have a hard conversation, I think also spills over to those more public moments. Yeah. And I think that really goes to the idea of trying to separate out a person from their work or from their ideas and trying to build a culture where it's acceptable to say, I find that design a little bit hard to read. And you're not trying to say to the designer, you suck at your job. And to try to make that like really normalized. If you're trying to tell somebody like, okay, you're, you're not meeting performance expectations, that's definitely a private conversation. But if you're wanting to say like, okay, I'm not sure this note you wrote, Katie, strikes the right tone. I actually once announced, I wrote a draft post to our engineering team announcing that we would take Friday afternoons off for the August of last year. But I was so nervous that it would sort of end up really derailing the products and end up losing the trust of the product team that I had put so many caveats into this note that it was, it was like, okay, well, we're taking Friday afternoons off, but 
don't think that this means that like we don't have goals anymore. Like we still need to get stuff done. My engineering manager was like, Katie, somehow you're announcing good news, but the tone is just so dire. I feel really down and depressed by the time I get to the end of your notes. I'm like you definitely can't share this to the team. And I think that was really, that was really great. I tried to tell the story as much as I can. And I was like, oh shit, like you're totally right. We workshopped it and got it to a good point of like, yeah, we're taking these Friday afternoons off and that's great, really great and really healthy. And we think we can still make good progress on our goals at the same time. But yeah, if my team hadn't felt confident giving me that feedback, I would have gone and really depressed everybody. It would have been terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget in, I think it was my second job out of college, I had a manager who I was in consulting and obviously doing client-facing work. And I had written, I can't remember if it was an email or a post or I don't know what it was, but I'd written something. And he wrote this comment that was like, three pages long about how I demonstrated a pattern of not knowing how to use commas properly and like broke down my comma usage. It was this whole thing. And he was talking about commas, but really what he was talking about was like, you need to pay attention to what you're doing and like really think about the details because every touch point we have with the client is like part of our brand. And it was a really good point that he was making, but it was the first time someone had been like, hey, you did this wrong and really directly. And I was like, oh my God, I'm getting fired. Like, what do I do? And then I walked into the kitchen in our office, like super stressed out. And he was in there too. And I lived in New York at the time. And he was like, hey, you know, did you try that new restaurant? Because we both lived in the same area. And I was like, oh wait, you still think I'm an okay person and you're going to talk to me. You're not mad at me. And I think that was the first time that I had someone give me really intense feedback, but then tell me, not just tell me, but show me that I was still like a valued coworker. Yeah, that's such a good point that you can still have, you know, really genuine human connection with somebody. You can say, yeah, the way you use commerce doesn't make any sense. And then also, by the way, like, did you try that restaurant? I love that. That's a really good point. Honestly, to this day, I'm not sure I use commas correctly. And I've always been like second guessing myself. So maybe his feedback did backfire a little bit, but... I got feedback like that about how I do spreadsheets once was like the spreadsheet, like, yeah, it's correct, but like, it's such a mess. Like you need to have like grid lines turned on and like color coded. And it's really weird. Every time I do a spreadsheet now, I'm like, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. okay, did I use this comma correctly? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I guess one final question I have about sort of managing and, and training managers is like, what is your best advice for managers new managers, maybe managers that have had a couple of years of experience, especially in this sort of strange, we're all working from home time. So in this strange time, the best advice I can give new managers or anybody who feels like they want advice is be really clear about productivity expectations. People are going to find it very difficult to be as productive, especially parents. There's an article going around and it's called The Parents Are Not Okay. And you should definitely Google that. And the parents are not okay. As a manager, there's probably a lot of stress on you to try to keep things together, be as productive, especially if your company's considering layoffs, if there's been economic impact. And you might feel the temptation to sort of like get your team to get stuff done. And I understand that you don't want to lay people off. Of course you don't. But the reality is that a lot of people literally cannot get as much done and stressing about it when they can't really do anything better is actually making matters worse for them. So try to be very, very clear about productivity expectations that you have for them and reframe it as, okay, if you get something done in a day, if you just continue to make like sort of consistent progress towards the goal, like that's great. If you need to take time to care for your kid because they're all being homeschooled right now, that is okay. That kind of human element and being really clear that people are getting less done 
it'll go a long way right now. And I know that that's quite scary to do as a manager. I know that feeling of, well, what if we all get a huge amount less done and then the business is really in trouble and everything's worse. But the reality is people aren't magically going to become more productive because of your expectations. They're going to become more stressed and then they're going to become less productive. So the best thing you can do for your teams right now is acknowledge what's going on and be really clear that maintaining pre-pandemic, my children are at school and I'm working from an office levels of productivity is unrealistic and help people actually plan for what they can do, what is realistic for them to get done. You'll get more done that way and it'll go a huge amount towards helping your teammates really trust you and get through this in a better shape than they would otherwise. Yeah, I love that advice. I think that's so important, especially as someone... I don't have kids. And so I, I've been trying to spend a lot of time, you know, reading those articles and thinking about what, what that experience is like, because I want to make sure that I'm extra sensitive, especially to something that I might not be familiar with. Absolutely. I think if you're a, a manager who doesn't have children, I don't either. It's incredibly important to build that muscle and recognize that you have a blind spot. All right. Well, Katie, I have one last question, which is, is there anything that you are reading or listening to that you're finding particularly great in this time or inspiring or just enjoyable? You know, I was just talking to our acting head of product about this and we found out we were both really enjoying historical fiction. And I'm reading something called The Witch's Daughter. It's sort of slightly magical and <laughs> historical. And there's something about just reading fiction right now, not trying to improve myself or do something different and read about how things were in a slower time when most people were at home baking bread, <laughs> baking whatever it is, that I found incredibly soothing. And I recommend that, like, take your pleasure where wherever you can. And for me, that's right now reading historical fiction. If you do want a work-related or management-related read, I would always recommend The Manager's Path. It's by Camille Fournier. It really breaks down like what to do, how to be a decent manager. And if you want to read on how to navigate being a manager in a remote setting, if you go to holloway.com, that's H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y, holloway.com, I've recently written a guide for managers in a remote setting, and it really goes into mental health, difficult conversations, how to do one ones remotely, all of the stuff you would need to know as a remote manager. So if you are looking for tactical information, that's all documented there. Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so people can have it. Great. Thank you so much, Maggie. Katie, thank you so much for coming to the show. This was really awesome. And thank you for bringing this really, really important topic to the show. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Take care. Stay safe. <laughs> 